Let us pray. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are in our continuing study of Paul's epistle to the Romans, and we are coming to the end of this section, chapters 9 through 11. So we are in chapter 11 today, so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please open them up to Romans chapter 11. And we're going to spend our time probably getting through the greater part of this chapter. So I'm going to do something rather unusual, and that is that we're just going to go ahead and read through the whole chapter before we go back and take a look at it. It's a big argument that Paul is making. We introduced it last week, and we'll continue to take a greater look at it today. But it's helpful not to sort of divide it up, but to read it in one sitting. So Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, beginning at verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they may fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches." If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. 
Note then the kindness and severity of God, a severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even if they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regard to the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have become disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also might now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul, of course, in Romans chapter 11 is responding to a question that had arisen in the minds of some of his readers. It was a question that was prompted by what Paul had said several chapters earlier in chapter 8. Now, chapter 8, as you've heard me say before, is sort of the Mount Everest of Paul's epistle to the Romans. That is that marvelous chapter about Christian assurance. The fact that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there are extraordinary benefits. If you want to sum up basically what Paul says very simply in Romans chapter 8, you can say that Paul's great message in Romans chapter 8 is that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation, no separation, and no defeat. That, that's the message, basically, that Paul... Now, you're thinking to yourself, well, why didn't you just tell us? Why did we take several weeks to get through Romans chapter 8? Because, of course, there's much more to it than that. But that's the basic message that Paul is saying. For those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are in fellowship with him, who have been reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit, that is true in their lives. It's not just true in the future, it is true in the present. Go back to Romans chapter 8 for just a moment and take a look at these three things. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We all know because Paul has told us earlier in this epistle that the wages of sin is what? Death. And how many of us are sinners? 
All of us. There's no one who does righteous. No, not one. No one who seeks God, Paul says. So we all stand under the judgment of God. That's how the chapter, how, how the epistle begins in Romans chapter 1. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth. So we're all under judgment. But when you come to know Jesus Christ, when you come into fellowship with him, Paul says you pass from death to life. You pass from condemnation to vindication. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news for you and for me? Especially when we're assaulted by guilt. Now, sometimes guilt is a good thing because we've done something wrong and our conscience is bearing witness to us. But there are times when we just feel guilty. We know that God has forgiven us and yet we still feel guilty because what we did was so egregious, so terrible. What Paul is reminding us is that for those who are in Christ Jesus, even the vilest of the vile can be forgiven. Make a person out to be an elephantine sinner, he says, and there is still room for them even in the ark of Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's the second thing. There is no separation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the question that he asks in verse 35. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, people will sometimes describe themselves as falling out of love. Couples sometimes fall out of love, that's what they say. I want you to understand that there is nothing when you are in Christ Jesus, absolutely nothing, that can separate you from his love. You are united to him. That's the essence of salvation, to be in union with Christ, and you are united with him forever. You're united in his death, and you are united in his resurrection, and there is nothing. I love the way that Paul actually catalogs all the things that the world might say might separate us from the love of Christ, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Those things can certainly separate you from the love of other human beings, but he says none of those things can separate you from the love of Christ. And he goes on to say, not even death, nor life, not angels, not rulers, not things present, nor things to come, not powers, not height, not depth. And then he adds this, and this is sort of a catch-all phrase, and I'm very happy that he put it in there. He says, nor anything else in all of creation. Now, why is it important that he puts in there not anything in all of creation? Because that means us. You know, you think to yourself, well, I might just possibly mess this up. I might do something that is so terrible that God will never be able to forgive it. When Paul adds that phrase, nothing in all of creation, I've got news for you, your creation you're part of that creation. And what he's saying is, for those who are in Christ Jesus, not your past can't separate you, your present can't separate you, and not even anything that you will do in the future can possibly separate you from the love of Christ. So there's now no condemnation, there's no separation, and here's what he says, there is no defeat. Verse 37, knowing all these things, we are more 
than conquerors through him who loved us. You'll notice that Paul doesn't simply say we are conquerors. He says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now that's a wonderful promise. And that's why everybody loves Romans chapter 8, this Mount Everest of the scriptures. But it did, as I said, raise a question in the minds of some of Paul's readers. And that's what he's answering in Romans chapter 11. The question is pretty simple. It's this. Well, that's a wonderful promise that God makes that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can condemn us for those who are in Christ Jesus. And nothing can defeat us. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But if that is true, what about the Jews? Because God said that they were his covenant people, that he would love them forever. And yet it appears, Paul, that the vast majority of the Jews have indeed rejected the gospel. They have rejected Jesus Christ. So if God didn't keep his promise to the Jews, how in the world can we expect that he's going to keep his promise to us in Romans chapter 8? That's the question that has arisen, and that's the question that Paul is answering here in Romans chapter 11. And you'll notice how he responds in chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? The answer is, by no means. And then he begins to explain why it is the case that God has not rejected his people. First of all, he says, there are some who have believed. He says, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. That's the first thing. And it's an important point to remember that in those early days, following the resurrection, when the apostles were at work, most of the converts, certainly the church in Jerusalem, was made up of what? Jews, all of the disciples, every single one of the 12 was a Jew. Paul himself was a Jew. So Paul says it's not fair to say that God has rejected his people because there are many of us, he said, who have in fact believed in the gospel. Now Paul was no fool and he was not just trying to bamboozle people. He knew that while some had certainly accepted Christ, the vast majority had not. And he knew that from his own experience, especially as he made his way throughout the Greco-Roman world. One of the things you'll notice when you read through the book of Acts is that whenever Paul went into a new place to preach the gospel, he always went first, even though he was the apostle to the Gentiles, he always went first to the synagogue. He always went first to the Jews, probably because at least they had a knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures from which he could begin to preach the gospel. But the reality is he took the gospel to the Jews. And he knew that a vast majority of them had rejected that gospel, and we'll see that that is the case. But Paul says it's not fair to say that God has rejected his people because I myself am one of them. He also goes on to say this, it had always been from the very beginning, not just in recent days, but Paul says that it had always been a case where not everybody, even in the nation of Israel, had been saved. That God had always preserved a remnant. It had always been that way, he says. And he refers back to the time of Elijah, when Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. You remember that story? And he called down fire from heaven 
and it consumed the sacrifice and the people rose up and began to worship the Lord God Almighty and they put the prophets of Baal to death. You remember that? It was a great high point, a great victory. But then, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. Queen Jezebel, who had heard about this, was so angry that she sent off troops to destroy Elijah and he had to flee and he ends up living isolated in a cave and he's feeling sorry for himself and he says, oh Lord, I'm the only one left. Look what I've done for you, God. I, I stood up to these false prophets and we slaughtered them and we got rid of them and we've, we've purged out this cancer that was and now look what's happening to me. I'm forced to flee. My life is forfeit. Woe is me. I'm the only one left. You remember that? And God came to him. We're told that he stood at the mouth of the cave and there was this great earthquake that took place. And then there was this great windstorm that took place. And each time we're told God was not in the earthquake, God was not in the windstorm. And then there came a still, small voice. God was in the voice and God said to him, I have preserved for myself a remnant, several thousand who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. You are not alone. It may seem sometimes as though you're alone, but you're not alone. God has always preserved a remnant. And that's what Paul is saying here. He said, well, if that was true of Israel all those centuries before, what makes you think it's not true of Israel today? So he said, some have accepted and even those who have not, that is in accord with what God has done in the past. There has always been a remnant. And he goes on to say this. He said, and the third thing to remember is this. While there is a hardening that has come upon Israel, he says it is a partial hardening and it is a temporary hardening. Verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. For as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. So he says, yes, God has allowed them to reject, but it's a partial hardening and it's a temporary hardening. And the other thing to remember, he said, is that inclusion within the covenant community is not a matter of just blood. See, that was the thing that the Jews believed. Well, we're the children of Abraham, so our ticket's punched. Everything's been taken care of. And Paul says it has always been the case from the very beginning that God saves Jews and he saves Gentiles in precisely the same way. And he saves them how? By grace. By grace. Verse 5, so it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. The Apostle Paul is the great apostle of grace. Paul loved to talk about grace. I'm afraid that for many people today, instead of speaking of amazing grace, I think we find grace to be rather boring. You know, it's amazing to me. I, I think one of the best hymns you can ever sing at a funeral is Amazing Grace. But I'm finding that more and more people say, oh, that, that's, that, I'm tired of that song. Now, you might be tired of the tune, but you should never grow tired of the sentiment. The amazing grace of God. 
The author of that great hymn was John Newton. I'm sure you know that. Um, he was a former slave trader who was converted, and he wrote that great hymn. But toward the end of his life, and incidentally, he became a clergyman in the Church of England. After his conversion, he studied, um, went off, and was ordained as a priest, and, and served for many years faithfully in the parish. But toward the end of his life, he was getting up there in age, uh, he started to get forgetful. And um, he would get into the pulpit and sort of lose his place from time to time. It's the fear of every minister, incidentally. And he got up there and he would get nervous and anxious and discombobulated. And finally, somebody came to him, probably the vestry of the church, and said, you know, it might be time to hang up the cleats. It might be time to, to pack it in, to retire and John Newton had a wonderful response to that. He says, it is true, my mind is failing. He said, but I remember two things. He says, I remember that I am a great sinner. And I remember that he is a great savior. And he said, as long as I remember those two things, I will continue to preach the gospel. Well, that's what grace is, isn't it? It's, it's understanding that. And Paul understood it. He loved grace. And that's what he was saying here. He said, don't think for one minute that the Jews are saved simply because they are Jews, simply because they can trace their lineage like we trace our lineage back to the sons of the American Revolution or the daughters of the American Revolution or the colonial dames used to trace your lineage back. He said, it's not a case that the Jews were ever saved because of that. They were saved because it was all of God's grace. That was true then and it is true now. Why did God choose the Jews in the first place? Not because they were the most numerous people in the world, not because they'd done anything extraordinary, but because it pleased God to do so. He set his affection on them, which is a matter of pure, unmerited favor. That's grace. Paul loved it. He loved it. You know, there are only eight references in the Old Testament to grace. Did you know that? Only eight references in the whole of the Old Testament to grace. Now, the concept is there in other places, but that word grace is only used, really, the Hebrew equivalent of it, eight times. Contrast that with the New Testament, where we find it 128 times. And almost all of those references come from the writings of the Apostle Paul. Now, why did Paul love grace? And why should you and I love grace? Indeed, why is grace necessary? That's what Paul says here. He says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. Why is grace absolutely essential for your life and for mine? Well, there are a number of reasons. First reason is because of our natural state. You know, some people have said that grace is the hardest of all the Christian doctrines for us to really grasp. Some people say, oh no, it's the doctrine of the Trinity. This idea that God is three in one and one in three, Trinity and unity, unity and Trinity. Other people have suggested, no, it's the, the doctrine of the hypostatic union. Now that's a big phrase. What does that mean? It, it refers to the two natures of Jesus Christ, that Christ is at one and the same time fully God 
and fully human. Not either or, but both and. And what's more, not 60-40 or 50-50 or 70-30 or 80-20 or 90-10, but he is 100% divine and 100% human. And somebody says, well, I don't understand that math. Well, I've never been good at math to begin with. I don't understand it either. But that is the testimony of Scripture. You say, well, those are hard doctrines for us to understand. Well, they are hard doctrines for us to understand. But I think in many ways, the doctrine of grace is a harder doctrine for us. Not harder for us to understand, but harder for us to accept. Why is grace hard for us to accept? Because grace implies that there is absolutely nothing, nothing that you and I can do to earn our salvation. How much do we contribute to our redemption? Nothing. Nothing at all. Let me be clear about this. Zilch, zip, nothing, nada. And that's because of our own natural state. What is our natural state? What is our natural condition by virtue of our inclusion in the human race? Well, keep your finger, yes it is that we are sinners, but it's more than that. That would be bad enough. But keep your finger there in Romans 11 and flip over to Ephesians. Now, we've looked at this passage before, but Paul paints in stark hues here what our condition really is. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in what you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, so that we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, Paul says two things there that are vitally important to understand if you're going to appreciate grace. The first thing you need to understand is that spiritually speaking, you are not sick. You know, we sometimes talk about being sin-sick and sorrow-worn. Oh, that it were. Oh, that that was the only problem we had, that we were sin-sick. But that's not the way Paul describes it. Here he says, and you were what? Dead. Now, you've heard me ask this question before. How much good can a dead person do? You can plead with a dead person. You can argue with a dead corpse. But let me tell you something. It is never going to respond I've told you before, sometimes when I'm working through a concept in a sermon, I will go out and take a walk, and I often walk through the cemetery. I probably preached a hundred sermons over there over the course of the past eight years, and never once has anybody responded to the altar call. <laughs> because they're dead. In the same way that Mary and Martha pleaded with Lazarus to come out of the tomb, but he could not do it. That's our spiritual condition. So when you say, well, I think I'm a pretty good person, I think I'm respectable, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm certainly better than others, and I'm hoping that God grades on the curve. Let me tell you something, you've never understood your spiritual condition. You do not understand how bad it really is. You don't understand how bad you really are. 
Paul says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, and because you were dead in those things. Now, Paul describes this in such a way that we almost come across as spiritual zombies. Bill made reference to that this past Sunday, the whole cult of zombies and people being, you know, I don't, the only zombies I ever knew were the old Boris Karloff movies, you know, where you had those kind of zombies. But what is the zombie? A zombie is the living dead. Basically, that's what Paul says. We are the living dead. We are the true zombies. We are spiritually dead, but we're physically alive. We're, we're walking around, we're conducting business, we're doing all of that. But in terms of our relationship with God, we're dead. And so we're following not God, we're following the ways of this world. And the result is that we're not only dead, we're under judgment. You know, people often talk about the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Aren't we all God's children? Now, I have said this before, and I want to ram it home to you today. None of us, by virtue of our inclusion in the human race, is a child of God. Now, we are all creatures of God. Indeed, we are exalted creatures of God. We have been made in the image of God. That makes us unique. It means we are precious in His sight. But none of us, nowhere in Scripture does it say we are children of God. We only become children of God by what? By grace, by adoption. And because we're dead, the only way that we can become children of God, the only way we can be adopted is if God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves, and that is make us alive and we, even when we were dead. The only way that Lazarus could come out of the tomb physically, even though all those people had gathered from Jerusalem and were pleading with him, the only way that he could come out of the tomb is if Jesus Christ came and did for him what he could not do for himself, and that is... Make him alive again. And indeed, that is exactly what Paul says here in Ephesians 2. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. You say, well, why did he love us? Well, not because we're lovable. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then he says, by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You know, a good teacher, in order to get the message across, will repeat it over and over again. That's what Thomas Cranmer does in the liturgy when he talks about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Protestants, Anglicans, unlike Roman Catholics, do not believe that every time the Eucharist is, is celebrated, that Christ is sacrificed over and over again. Now, that's a difference between Roman Catholic Eucharistic theology and Anglican Eucharistic theology. The Catholics literally believe that every time the Mass is celebrated, Christ is literally sacrificed again. But we believe that the teaching of Scripture is that Christ's sacrifice happened once. And it doesn't have to be repeated. It was sufficient. And that's what Cranmer is saying. He said, it is a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, satisfaction for the sins of the whole world 
once offered. You see how he keeps saying the same thing over again? You almost want to say, okay, Thomas Cranmer, we get it. But he says, no, it's a full, it's a perfect, it's a sufficient sacrifice, oblation, satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Paul does the same thing here. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable wretches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. An ablation is a washing away, a purging away. But here's the point that Paul is trying to make. Grace should be extraordinary to us because of our natural condition. And grace is necessary for us because Jesus says, unless we are reborn, we cannot see the kingdom of heaven. That's what he said to Nicodemus. Nicodemus came under the cover of darkness. He was curious about Jesus. And I love the way that conversation begins in John chapter 3. Nicodemus knocks on the door, and I think he supposed that Jesus would be impressed by the fact that he came. But he knocks on the door. It's in the middle of the night. Jesus answers the door, and he says, hello, hello, I'm Nicodemus. I'm one of the Pharisees. I'm a member of the ruling angel. And then Nicodemus immediately launches into what he knows. He's a man that's used to being in charge. We know. And then he gives a catalog of all the things that he knows about Jesus, particularly the fact that Jesus had to be from God because no one could do the things that Jesus was doing unless he was from God. And I, I just love the fact that, that Jesus cuts right through it. Jesus doesn't say, oh, well, Nicodemus, what an honor. Come on in. Let me make you some tea. Let's sit down and talk about these things. Jesus doesn't say anything like that. Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, I know why you're here. And let me just get to the chase. Unless you are born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, well, what? How can a man be born when he is old? And Jesus said, well, you're the teacher. You're the theologian. You're the expert. You do not understand these things. The wind blows where it will. And you can't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus, you can't control the wind and you cannot control the Spirit. To be born again is a matter of God's grace. It is a matter of God's grace. Now you say, well, where does faith fit into this? Don't we contribute something to the process? Don't we contribute faith to the process? No. Even faith is a gift. How do we know that faith is a gift? Because dead people don't possess anything. You can't have faith if you're dead. God has to first make you alive, and then you can have faith. Here is a shock. This is not the way we normally think of it, but this is the way that Paul presents it to us, not only in Ephesians, but in Romans and elsewhere, in Galatians and so forth. Here's a shock. Many people say, if you believe, you will be born again. That's not actually the way that Paul presents it. Paul says regeneration precedes faith. 
God makes us alive even when we were dead. And faith is a gift to us. It's a faith that comes with this new birth. And faith is the means by which we embrace the truth of the gospel. So even faith itself isn't a work, it's a gift. That's why we talk about the gift of faith. It's because you have to be made alive again. It's interesting to note how Paul begins some of his epistles, particularly his two letters to Timothy. He talks about grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the way he begins those epistles. That's his greeting. Grace, mercy, and peace. Those three things were essential to Paul's own life, and they're essential to your life and mine as well. We need God's grace because we're dead in our trespasses and in our sins. What's mercy? Well, mercy is almost like grace, except that it's, it's grace in action. What is mercy? Mercy is basically God looking upon us and having pity. In the same way that you might have pity on somebody who is in a desperate plight, in a desperate situation. You see somebody begging by the side of the road or somebody who has been diagnosed with a terrible disease and you say to yourself, I just feel so bad for them. That is mercy. It's grace shown toward the pitiful. And then he says there's peace. When you realize that you're pitiful, and you are, and so am I, we're pitiful. Our plight is pitiful. And you realize that God loves us, that he's had pity on us, taken pity on us, that he has mercy on us. And when you realize that he has decided to make us alive even when we were dead, then you begin to realize that it's true. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation because he didn't have to make me alive. He didn't have to have pity on me. But the fact that he did means that there is now no condemnation. There is no separation. There is no defeat. And when you know that in your life, you can have peace. You can have that peace which the world cannot afford, the world cannot understand, that peace which passes human understanding. And Paul says that is true of Jews and it's true of you Gentiles as well. He said that was true for them and he said it's true for you too. So let's talk a little bit about Paul and the Gentiles because he immediately goes on from talking about the Jews and about the fact that God has not rejected them, that it is all a matter of grace, to now talking about the Gentiles and how they have been saved in precisely the same way as the Jews. He says, just as God has a plan for the Jews, God has a plan for the Gentiles. What is God's plan for the Gentiles? He says it is that they would be brought into the community of faith precisely because the Jews have rejected it. Precisely because the Jews have rejected it. Now, Paul says that here. He says this, So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means you, to the Gentiles. But all of this is to make Israel jealous. He said, so yes, it is true. The Jews have rejected the gospel in large measure. 
Not everyone, of course, and it's always a matter of grace, and there's always been a faithful remnant. But yes, he acknowledges the fact that a great many Jews have. But he said this is also part of God's plan. In fact, their rejection of the gospel was meant so that you might be included in the covenant community. Now that's what he says, but Paul knew this from his own personal experience. Paul knew this from his own personal experience. Keep your finger there in Romans and turn over to Acts 13. Now, we've looked at Acts 13 on a, come, on a few occasions. It's because Acts chapter 13 is one of those pivotal moments in the history of the early church. I, I say it's the beginning of the missionary era. Now, some people will say, no, no, no. The missionary era started way back in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down on the apostles and empowered them to go out and, and preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. Well, that is true, but it's not true in its fullest sense. You'll notice that between Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 13, the early Christians shared their faith, but only as the opportunities presented themselves. But in Acts chapter 13, everything changes. For the first time, the church is no longer reactive, it's proactive. For the first time, missionaries are sent out to reach what we would call unreached people groups. All right? And Paul and Barnabas are those two that are sent off. They go off on their first missionary journey... And one of the places that they visit is this place called Antioch in the province of Pisidium. Now they go into the synagogue, as was their custom, and they preached the word of the Lord. And it apparently had a real impact upon the people. They were, they were wowed by this extraordinary sermon that Paul had preached. And this is what happens. We're told that they begged the apostles to come back the next Sabbath, this is in verse 42, Acts chapter 13, verse 42. They went out and the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Now, who are the people begging them to come back the next Sabbath? Jews. I mean, they were in the synagogue. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Well, that's wonderful. But look at verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Now, it's not just the whole congregation. We're told the whole city came out. In other words, from that Sabbath into the next, the word had spread that there were these two people who had come from Jerusalem by way of Antioch, and they were preaching that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one who would be the glory of Israel, but also the light to enlighten the Gentiles, had arrived. And everybody said, well, we want to hear about this. And so you look and it says, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. 
For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But they shook the dust off their feet and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice a number of things that happened here. First of all, they went to the Jews first, and they preached the gospel. And initially, the Jews received it. But over the course of the next week, when they saw that the Gentiles were coming to hear the message, they became jealous. And they did what? We're told they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. And so Paul responds boldly, it was necessary that we preach first to you, but since you reject it and count yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. So you see the pattern here. This is exactly what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 11. Why? Because he'd experienced it firsthand in his own life and ministry. He went first to the Jews. Some received it, but others became jealous when they realized that this was a message of universal salvation. Not universal in the sense without exception, but universal all people may believe and be saved. And so they reject the gospel. They're offended by it. And Paul turns to the Gentiles and the Gentiles receive it. But why did the Gentiles receive it? Why? Because they were more noble than the Jews? Because they were more enlightened than the Jews? Because they were more spiritually attuned than the Jews? That's not what the text says. What does the text say? It's really interesting. This is one of those little phrases that people gloss over. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now that's curious, isn't it? That is not the way we would expect the text to, book to read. We would have expected, beginning at verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. But that's not what it says. It says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. How were the Gentiles saved? By the grace of God. And that is how you and I are saved. It is amazing grace. But it will never be amazing to you. It will never transform your life. It will never set your heart free. Unless you understand that you're a wretch. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. A wretch who's dead in your trespasses and in your sins, who's under the wrath of God. But he being rich in mercy made you alive. Appointed you to eternal life. And because of that, you have believed. 
And salvation has come to your life and to the life of those around you. That's what Paul was proclaiming here in Romans. And what was true for the Jews is true for us. Paul's argument is really very simple. He said, Israel has stumbled, but her stumble is not permanent. It's not final. He says, actually, Israel's stumbling is so that the gospel might come to the Gentiles. Since you regard it as, since you reject it and regard yourselves unworthy of eternal life, therefore we are going to the Gentiles. And the salvation of the Gentiles, he said, will ultimately lead to jealousy on the part of the Jews. When they realize the benefits that you and I have received, the mercy, the grace, the peace which passes human understanding, they are going to come in jealousy and say, what is it that you have that we don't have? And that gives us the opportunity to do what? To share the good news and the promises that in the end, God will use that as a means of saving his ancient people. Now, we look at that right now in history and you say, well, how can that be? I don't know. It doesn't seem possible to us. But I'm sure when Christ's lifeless and limp body was taken down from the cross and placed in that borrowed tomb, it didn't look possible that he was going to come out on the third day, but he did. And the promise is that that is what God is going to do today. In the meantime, what should you and I be doing? We should be urgent in evangelizing the Jews. Now, I'm going to say that right off the bat because some people think, my goodness, that is a terrible thing to do. We are told today that that's an anti-Semitic idea to say that they are not saved and that they need the gospel. Let me tell you something. I'm not saying that. That's what the Apostle Paul said. Paul went first to whom? The Jews. If they were already saved, if they were already included, if it was not a matter of grace for them, if it was a matter of just lineage, Paul would have never gone to them. He went to them. Why? Because he loved them. His heart was breaking for his own people. And what he's saying is that we Gentiles have now received the gospel because a partial hardening has come upon Judaism, but it is now incumbent upon us to take that gospel back to these people. And that's where he invokes this image of the tree. He says they were this olive tree, this fruitful tree. They were God's precious planting. And some of the branches have been cut off. And he said, you have been grafted in, but you're wild olive trees that have been grafted into this cultivated tree. He says, but if you are a wild olive branch grafted in, you don't think that God can't graft back in those branches that have been cut off? You and I should be concerned for those who are God's ancient people who have rejected the gospel, and we should be about sharing the good news with them. There is nothing that would be kinder to them than to do that. Now, we have to do that in a delicate way. How do we do that? Well, the answer is up there on the screen. <laughs> the way that you do that is, first of all, respectfully. You have to realize they have a wonderful history. You have to realize that you yourself have been grafted into the olive tree. 
that they were originally a part of. So we do it respectfully. We do it relationally. Let me tell you something. All ministry is relational. The best way to reach people with the gospel is by getting to know them. We used to say this when I did youth ministry. Make a friend, be a friend, and bring a friend to Christ. You can't bring a friend to Christ if you haven't made a friend, if you haven't been a friend. So how do we do that? We make friends. That means you're going to have to make friends with people that are not like you. That means you're going to have to make friends with people you don't know. You make a friend, you be a friend, you bring a friend to Christ. You need to do it respectfully. You need to do it relationally. You need to do it by modeling the Christian life. Acts of help, acts of service. That's why people were drawn to Jesus, not only by what he said, but the way he did things. How he cared for the poor and the outcast. You have to put on love. Isn't that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? He says, if I speak without love, I am what? A noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You have to put on love. Now, what does it mean to love? It means to put the welfare and the well-being of the other before yourself. You have to be prepared to speak the gospel. You have to be prepared to eventually get to that point where you share with them. See, once you have a relationship with somebody, once they trust you and you trust them, it's only natural that eventually you're going to get around to the most important thing in your life to talk about it. And if Jesus Christ is the most important thing in your life, eventually you will get around to the point that that is what you want to share with them. Oh, you can talk about the Super Bowl. You could talk about the golf game. You could talk about politics. But if you're a Christian, the most important thing in your life you're saying is Jesus Christ. And eventually, if you have a friend and that person doesn't know Jesus Christ and is in danger of being lost, then it's incumbent upon you to share that gospel. Now you would say, well, if it's a matter of God's grace and election, he's going to save them anyway. That's not true. He is going to save them, but he's not going to save them anyway. He saves them through the preaching of the gospel. That's how they are made alive. That's how they receive the gift of faith. And faith comes by hearing, and hearing what? By the word. But how shall they hear? How shall they believe? Unless somebody goes to them. That's why Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And finally, you have to do this respectfully, as I said, but you have to do it in great humility. That is to say, you understand what they need, but you also have to remember what you once were. Turn again to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore remember, this is chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. 
You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You were without hope and without God in the world. That's what you and I were. Because we were not born Jews. We were not part of the covenant community. We were called uncircumcised, that is to say unclean, by those who were clean. He said, you were separated from the Savior. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, God's chosen people. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You didn't even have knowledge of the scriptures. You had no hope. You were without God. And you were without hope in the world. But now. Those two glorious words, but now. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Who has done what? Who has made us both one, having broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, one new people, one new Israel. and might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That's God's great plan. And that's why when you get to the end of chapter 11, Paul, when he thinks about that, when he thinks what God is doing in history, how God saved the Jews, how God by grace chose the Jews, that through the Jews there might come this particular man, Abraham, and through this particular man there might come a particular Savior, Jesus Christ. And through this Savior... He might call out to his own people who would reject him. And so the message would go to the Gentiles. They would receive the message. Their lives would be transformed. They would be reborn. And they would then live in such a way that they provoked the Jews to jealousy. And they took the gospel back to the Jews. And the Jews themselves would embrace it. And the hostility would end. And God would make out of two people one people. And all Israel, a spiritual Israel made of Jews and Gentiles would be saved. That is God's great plan of salvation. And that's why when Paul gets to the end of chapter 11, he can't help but erupt in song. For who has known the mind of God? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given the gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him. Be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that your ways are so much higher than our ways. Your ways are mysterious. And we thank you that you use us in spite of ourselves, but most of all, we thank you for your grace. A grace shown to us pitiful, wretched sinners. A grace that has taken us out of the fowler's snare, redeemed us, and set us upon a solid ground, and given us this wonderful vocation of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, to our fellow Gentiles, yes, but also to the Jews, your ancient people. For it is your heart's desire that all people, male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, might hear the good news of Jesus Christ 
and come to know him whom to know is life everlasting. Grant us the grace to do it, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.